How do we make the media more diverse? This question is one that almost all industries have not really been able to address. Because, in part, it's hard to know where to start. And that makes it easier to kind of shrug your shoulders and not do anything about it. There are structural inequalities in education, in health, in access, which then, like what people call the pipeline, they say, well, we can't hire these people because they're not coming up the pipeline. Then you have, you know, different people who have different exposures outside of work. So there's people who have to care for children, there's people who have to care for the elderly. One person going for a job might have 10 people relying on their salary and another person might just have themselves relying on their salary. And then add all of that onto the fact that there's just good old-fashioned racism, sexism, ableism, ageism, classism. So... This week, I'm really excited to speak to Olivia Krellen. She's a journalist and founder of the social enterprise PressPad. As she says later in the show, Olivia wanted to try plug one hole in this sinking ship of a situation. For most aspiring UK journalists, the only way to get access into the newsrooms that they'd hope to work for is by unpaid internships or internships that are don't normally scratch the underside of minimum wage. Most of those internships or work experience are in London, one of the most expensive cities in the world. PressPad links young people who get work experience in London with experienced journalists who offer them a spare room in their home. The idea is they get somewhere to stay while they're doing their work experience, they get to know someone in the industry, and media institutions get to access a wider pool of talent that they're always saying that they wish they could access. Welcome to Storyteller, a podcast about how and why we tell stories. I'm your host, Lise Golden. I love this conversation because I really admire anyone who tries to take on issues that can feel really intractable like this one. And making a service that interfaces with journalism is very brave. It is a tough crowd. Um, This is a group of people who are incredibly cynical and ruthless, and rightly so, because that's their job, and they hold other people to incredibly high account. So, and themselves, right? So when something comes into the media world, yeah, it's a tough crowd. PressPad has taken its licks, which we get into about halfway through this conversation, and they still came out the other end of it committed to the idea, which I just really admire. Um, I've seen many media startups come and go, and you know, they, it's hard, it's hard because I know everyone's trying, but I mean, the amount of things I've seen where people, you know, they're going to revolutionize how we do things and how we get stories and how we resource from the community like there's been so many media startups that I you know I haven't heard of since I saw their pitches like you know a couple of years ago so I'm assuming they haven't revolutionized the um, media industry just yet so for me I kind of press pad got my attention because they're not saying like oh we're gonna fix all the problems in media from my perspective um, Olivia obviously can speak to you know, how and why she started PressPad. But for me, when I looked at PressPad, I was like, 
the industry is saying, oh, we want we want to hire more diverse, you know, we, 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 we want to be better, we want to do all of these things, but then they're never going to pay those people enough to come work for them, to do internships, to get their foot in the door. And I kind of feel like Presspads turning around and going, cool, well, we'll, we'll get them to you, you know, you, you're not going to pay them enough. So I just think it's it's sort of deeply practiced it's very it's driven by olivia's um belief in the idea but i just like that it's sort of tangible and that it's like a thing that can happen and is done and is not promising the the earth you know the conversation also made me think a lot about american silicon valley startup culture that's just permeated everything that we do which i'm going to talk a little bit about at the end so before i start um Everyone, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference to to me. It makes me so happy. And uh, I think what I like more is when people share the podcast with someone that they like, or if there's someone that you think will find this interesting, please just share it with them. You know, you don't have to subscribe. You don't have to, um, you know, follow on social media or anything like that. I just, um, I just hope that these these conversations are. Um, interesting. I don't think they're often that useful. I just hope that they're. <laughs> I hope that they're interesting. Again, not promising to change the world here. I just um, want to follow my curiosity and bring you guys along with me. So uh, now onto my conversation with Olivia. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for coming on to Storyteller. I'm so excited to have this chat about diversity in the media and press pad. And I want to dig into, you know, yourself as a storyteller. But just to start off, um, I just want to ask if you consider yourself a storyteller. That's a great question. I think there was a time when I first noticed lots of journalists using the phrase storyteller. And it's, it's, a, it's a weird one. It kind of feels like a, a, a term from a bygone era, you know, of, you know, sort of folkloric telling tales around fire sort of vibe. But I think it is a useful one, especially as we move into um, Mm. journalists, you know, wearing multiple hats, being content creators. And so I have found myself using it uh, on occasion. I think I'm somebody that makes documentaries, radio and and, uh, TV and video documentaries, as well as writing, you know, sort of more conventional piece of journalism. Um, so I really wear those two hats, but I don't know if it would be the first one I would go to. I think it lacks the perhaps forensicness mm. and the uh, accountability perhaps of, um, a journalist, which I think for me, you know, that kind of public service journalism, yeah. um, is, is very much what motivates me at the same time though, it does cover a vast range of, of, of different, you know, types of, of journalism and story. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know that I have a weird relationship with the word. Sometimes it seems, it feels a bit naff, but, but definitely it, it, um, I I would say yes, yes. And, you know, with caveat. (laughs) Yes, for sure. I know. Cause also I think depending on like where you hear it for me, sometimes when I say the word storyteller, it sounds like a, like a little kid who lies in junior school. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, he's a little storyteller. It's, it depends. Yeah. Like what context it comes up in. Um, so can you just tell us and tell the audience um, the origins of, of your organization, Presspad? Sure. So um, Presspad started in uh, 2018 and was really the kind of accumulation of my personal experiences getting into journalism. I graduated and 
essentially had done a little bit of student journalism, you know, which was, um, you know, I was lucky to have, to have that opportunity, but didn't really know kind of what happened next, didn't know anybody in journalism, how it worked, how people got, you know, um, work experience. Uh, at the time, there may have been a few schemes. I think there are a lot more formal opportunities now, which is fantastic. But, you know, I, I, I didn't really know a how to, to, to get an opportunity past those, you know, that you could apply for online. Uh, and B, uh, I didn't live in London. And so I lived in, in, in the Midlands. And I think there was one person, a friend of my mother's, who was her bridesmaid at her wedding, who had a spare room that I could stay in. And I did for the one internship that I did at, um, at the BBC. But I, I couldn't work out how to afford being paid nothing doing jobs that I didn't or placements that I didn't know how to find I couldn't work out how to make the move to London which was where all these opportunities were and was supposedly you know where the whole media industry was and and, and that I had to go to, to, to start a career so I, I booked a one-way ticket to South America which sounds kind of crazy but that really enabled me to you know take up all sorts of opportunities that I wouldn't have had before do a level of journalism that I would have been crowded out of, you know, at that stage, being so young, if I'd been in a London newsroom, uh, I learned Spanish, um, I had all sorts of adventures, it was fantastic. And so that opportunity, you know, fast forward a couple of years, and I did a master's in the States with a, you know, a, a scholarship and did all sorts of other placements um, in the US that were crucially paid for. Uh, I, I find myself with with a staff job at the BBC and notice that my colleagues, you know, are all rather comfortable um, middle class, some of them married with, you know, properties, spare rooms, space, and, and also a, a lot of goodwill to try and help the next generation uh, of journalists. And so kind of putting these two different contexts together, I realized that actually, you know, there was a bridge to be built here, you know, between those who who didn't have those um, material resources and those who did. And the, the winner really out of all of that, as well as the two individuals, you know, was going to be journalism really because at that stage you know we we were going through brexit trump was uh just coming in, in into office and there was this kind of crisis of trust within journalism in particular around the type of voices being heard and you know diversity within the media runs a huge gamut of you know different areas of diversity but for me the one that i felt wasn't really being spoken about as much partly because it wasn't a, a visible form of diversity, it was that of class and socioeconomic background. Amazing. It's really interesting that you say that because I think, especially like just saying that like the sort of non-visible, uh, directly visible aspect of class, because I think being an outsider, the the language and the visibility, there's, there's, it is a distinctly like UK thing that we obviously will not unpack in this podcast but it was really interesting lesson for me because it was one of those things that was slightly invisible to me not coming from the UK and then learning quickly how um, prevalent it was and how much people could pick up Brits could pick up from other Brits like via accent via where they were from via what school they went to and it was weird it was like almost finding out like there was this little invisible language going on around me and I was I, I was like what people could tell things about other people from so that's I think that's really fascinating because it is it, it's um I think I, I I would be interesting to hear if you could speak more to like the the Trump era thing or maybe how it showed up in Britain which with Brexit I guess which was that feeling that large amounts of people had been sort of left out of the reporting what, what what does that diversity look like in the British press I guess we're speaking about specifically 
Yeah, so a lot of these figures are from 2018, some from 2016, just there aren't a huge number um, of, of studies out there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not great across the board. You've got 51% uh, of leading journalists, so sort of top editors, went to a private school. 80% of, of uh, editors were privately educated, so that's sort of broadening it out uh, a little bit more. Uh, only 11% of journalists are from a working class background. And 86% of journalists went to university. So that just shows you in terms of that class dimension. On top of that, obviously, then, you know, you have um, race and gender. Only 37% mm. of uh, senior um, roles in the radio industry are held by women. 0.4% of journalists are Muslim, only 0.4, which is uh, insane. And 94% of journalists are white. And this is a, a problem that you know, newsroom leaders, uh, you know, journalism bosses know about 46% have said that, you know, that um, they're uncomfortable with the level of diversity in their own newsrooms. Uh, And I do think that in the last few years, we have seen, you know, a dramatic push really to try and improve this. Um, And of course, with that comes, you know, all of its own issues that ends up being kind of hierarchies of need, Mm. you know, a lot of teething issues. Uh, We've seen various gaffes where, you know, people have tried, I think, to, you know, to to kind of uh, appeal more, you know, from a diversity perspective and got it wrong. Uh, And I think there's also a slight potentially, what's the word, sort of freezing effect you know uh perhaps in some for some people who feel sort of scared and intimidated by this topic and don't almost want to touch it at all because they just don't know how to handle it they're not kind of informed mm-hmm. and and as well there's a backlash which we always see you know when minority groups you know are trying to level the playing field um to go mm-hmm. back to the class element the media is this um you know prism through which you know, the world is being reflected, you know, back to us all. It's particularly important mm-hmm. to have that that prism kind of be as wide and varied as possible to make sure that we're seeing all angles. And I also just saw the the business need really as well for for news organizations and the democratic need as well, honestly, um, for for this to be recognized because it plays into the bottom line. You know, if you cannot mm-hmm. make your content attractive, you know, to a variety of different people you're going to struggle you know to sell papers to get audiences um and I think you know that's part of the motivating factor and that's something that I do talk to you know senior leaders in newsrooms about news organizations are going to continue you know to hold people accountable we really have to make sure that we're not just a kind of extension of the chumocracy we're essentially just making sure that we can get access to people to give us interviews to fill our you know our our airspace but without actually Mm. asking the tough questions and we've seen in particular here in the UK all sorts of issues about you know getting this government and this prime minister etc to give interviews at certain times and a slight tussle you know over who is in charge of the narrative here and I think um you know that's also really important if we don't have uh, voices in the newsroom that think to ask the questions that are going to affect people that are perhaps not represented in the newsroom then then you have an yeah. issue because the yeah. questions being asked the only answers being given aren't those actually um that matter um yeah so I think that's yeah important. yeah yeah and I mean, I think I, I, this is why PressPad is so fascinating to me because it sits at at such a um, it's there, there's so many in, things going on, right? So there's there's the media industry in itself is struggling. So it's like you're trying to increase 
diversity in newsrooms where like there's been hiring freezes for three years you know there, there, there's there's so many things going on and I, I think just the idea of like a very it, to me it just looked very like practical and it's like here's this giant thing we've all been sitting wringing our hands for years and it, it just to me at least was like this is the thing that can help like this is a concrete thing you go and you put the you know you 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 know plug this one hole in the ship that's full of holes kind of thing I think it's really interesting that Olivia took this angle for PressPad of getting people into the homes of the London media world. As she rightly pointed out, Brits are not unique in their uh, subtle and sometimes not so subtle social hierarchies. But I think if any of you are listening to this who are transplants to the UK like myself, um, I would love to hear your stories about what it's been like to learn about those systems and unpick those systems and how you came to understand the subtleties of what was going on especially in the workplace so drop me an email if you do have a story to tell me i'd be really interested to hear from you up next this wonderful plan to get the media world closer together starts gaining steam just as we are all informed that we have to stay very far away from each other But then obviously, then like everyone, um, COVID came along and absolutely threw everyone for loops. So could you just tell me a bit about how you pivoted from your um, initial offering to to what you've done with Presspad Remote in the in it's 2021 now, but um, speaking of 2020. Sure. So um, Presspad and uh, maybe I should have said this earlier on for those who don't know. Um, the idea is connecting, you know, senior journalists in, in big cities who have a spare room uh, and aspiring journalists who are looking for accommodation while they carry out entry level placements to connect them so that they have accommodation, but also to kind of upskill and, and broaden the horizons really of those senior journalists um, who get to meet you know, people, youngsters, perhaps who aren't the types of people who aren't, you know, naturally at the moment represented in our newsrooms. And it's a sort of win-win. But as you say, yes, it's it's deeply practical. Um, also um, deeply reliant on being able to go and stay in other people's homes, which is a <laughs> massive no-no during a pandemic. Mm. And before the pandemic hit, you know, we were at a really crucial point. We'd just done a big, big crowdfunder um, and raised, you know, £45,000. Um, and we were looking forward, to, you know, myself and, and Laura, my co-founder, you know, both working jobs in, in, in the media as well. So it was something we were doing on the side. And we were really hoping, you know, that that would allow us to uh, as we said, you know, as we said um, on our crowdfunding page to hire a coordinator uh, and then to have them manage the system that we had set up manually and sort of, you know, let it grow organically from there. And COVID hit and we couldn't do any of this, this hosting. And so we pivoted to um, provide, luckily, thanks to a grant um, that we had at the time from Nesta um, as part of the Future of News Fund, which was a government funded uh, innovation sort of program for startups within the news space. Uh, and we provided a single press pad remote, which we've just finished another round of crowdfunding to provide a second season, which I honestly thought would be, you know, something that would allow those kind of, you know, still 
trying to kind of you know find their feet uh you know with a kind of backlog of 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 placements um you know not not being as available to them but actually it feels like we're going to be putting this on you know it may be in the middle of another lockdown um so you know it's slightly we're back to square one so you know in a way um you know it's good that we can return um with the support you know of our donors to, to offer that again it's crucial time but we we pivoted to this support program which essentially, you know, is a mixture of webinars, uh, CV clinics, pitch clinics, uh, you know, one-on-ones with mid-career and, and experienced journalists, just to kind of create this community. And and it's been fantastic. You know, when we first started it, I think, you know, we, we got on with it quite quickly and quietly. Um, and, you know, a lot of people didn't really know what we were, we were doing. Um, everyone, I think, was just in a bit of a, a spin um, and, and all kind of scrambling to, to react and, um, and to, you know, survive that kind of, in the early days, you know, it was really very disorientating. But now, you know, I think um, there's quite a lot of other resources out there, which is fantastic. Uh, and I think, you know, it's great that we can we can return with with Press Pad Remote. But I'm definitely looking forward uh, to to when we can pivot back to um, our hosting service, which I think is what makes us unique. Moving forward, I, I really hope that a lot of these programs continue because if you think about pre-pandemic, you know, if you wanted to attend an event it would usually be held in a kind of swanky you know um building in central london with lovely canapes and wine and whatnot great but you know if you're you know based anywhere other than in london that's going to be impossible to get to and so you know i think that is another part of what perpetuates you know um the networks and the london centricness of it all if you're not here it's not happening Mm. um so you know Mm. i really hope that those um that mentality and you know I think it will I think everybody's kind of had a taste of it um it will be great to see that continue I think this is important press pad didn't want to be an online school but they moved quickly to find a way to service their community during a time where every business startup charity press organization human being in the world was scrambling and trying to adapt They took the money from the coordinator role and put it towards a tech solution, a marketplace website that can match people at scale. Um, Olivia explained that this was all a part of the way that the organization is trying to be lean, laser focused. Um, This is this, you know, Silicon Valley startup language again. They, this, this, this tech marketplace is the next step after proving their proof of concept. So we pick up here on Olivia explaining how they need to make PressPad financially viable. And I asked her how much the influence of the tech startup model of business has affected what they've done. Uh, What happened when they did have a bit of a communication mishap last year, so that would have been early 2020. And we get on to talking about why people expect so many people in the media to do so much work for free. Um, guys, as you hear now, I asked Olivia these like three huge questions all at once. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I'm gonna get better. I promise. I just get I just get very excited. You know, we've been working hard as well over the past couple of years. You know, since 
it was obvious that this is something that the industry would, you know, engage with. Uh, we've been working hard to mm. work out how to make it financially sustainable, which is, you know, a huge um, uh, element for any kind of uh, early business startup social enterprise. And also, you know, it's a huge question mark within the media industry itself coming up with something that is sustainable. Um, it, it's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's really interesting because there's like a lot of language of the startup world there. And, you know, of like being lean and, and being focused and, 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 but it's really interesting when the, that kind of language translates, you know, from Silicon Valley into the media world, because I'm like, you know, in Silicon Valley, you're looking at a massive payoff potentially at some point, you know what I mean? Like mm. things at scale or, you know, whereas, you know, I, it's interesting because by um, mechanism, there isn't normally a massive payoff in the media world because it's not, that's not what it's designed to do. Um, so if you could just speak a little bit, I mean, you sort of touched on it a little bit there, but I think it was this time last year when, when, um, there was sort of some, there was like a bit of miscommunication about, um, you know, fun or like, uh, the purpose of something. And we spoke a little bit about it off here before we started. Um, but I just thought if you could just quickly, briefly explain what happened there. And then I think I would just really like to speak to, maybe we can both just speak a bit to why we have this expectation of things being free in journalism and the kind of pressure that you put that is being put on the system because people can't do things for free and people are burning out yeah, and yeah. and we sort of seem to be stuck in this loop where we we need more innovation we need more bodies we need more creative thinking than we've ever had before in history and we're sort of asking that kind of innovation of a group of people who are exhausted who have like quite often really insecure work and incomes like yeah. on the contractor yeah. side of things so yeah so that's that's if we if you could just speak a little bit yeah. to to what happened last year and then that's sort of what you've learned there yeah. from from yeah this sort of free idea of everything being free <laughs> definitely so so last year um we we had a kind of soft launch which was fantastic and you know looking back at it I'm even more pleased that we did it you know considering the pandemic and the fact that we couldn't you know we can't all meet up in person and we had an event at the News UK building and they were generous enough to to loan us the space to do that um you know where we spoke about what we had managed to achieve so far and and looking ahead and um as such we updated the FAQs um on our website and then there was some miscommunication well I think there was some misinterpretation um, of, of those FAQs and perhaps not enough work on our part to manage expectations and to perhaps shepherd a kind of series of, of you know, I think it would have probably needed, you know, several um, uh, blogs and, um, you know, perhaps some more interviews. Although we, you know, I had spoken as well to, to some of the industry press like uh, journalism.co.uk about, you know, this mo this this idea of moving to, towards a sustainable business model. Um, but anyway, long story short, there was upset on Twitter within, within the journalism world and a few handful of journalists uh, about the fact that we were going to move towards charging people for mm. hosting. And I totally understand where that concern came from. And it was really helpful for us um, on a number of levels. At the time, obviously, didn't feel quite so helpful. Yeah. I think, you know, in terms of a sort of, um, you know, 101 in, in crisis comms management, tick, um, learned a lot of lessons yeah. there. Um, but also, you know, in understanding as well, really the, the strength and emotion of feeling 
within the industry towards Presspad. That was a real positive for me, you know, to show how much people really mm. cared that it that it worked, that it was doing the right thing. Uh, um, and also, you know, to, to, to really be held accountable as something, you know, that we embrace. We are a tiny organisation. There's still a lot of uh, comms about, you know, I guess pro- progress and, and developments that happen within the company and the way that we work, you know, even to do with, you know, who is still working on projects or not. Sometimes it feels almost impossible to, to do the work and then to keep up with communicating what is being done. Um, but it is obviously yeah. important. And I'll be looking much more at that in um, the first months of, of this year. But essentially, you know, I feel like, as you say, there was this moment perhaps on Twitter where the kind of world of social enterprise um, and, you know, tech companies, etc., which is what Presspad is moving towards, and the world mm. of journalism kind of collided slightly. And it was nobody's fault because up to that point, you know, we had very much been um, maybe a more traditional sort of mentoring scheme that was being run by, you know, two committed journalists mm. in their own time everything being done, you know, out of the goodness of people's hearts, etc. Yeah, reading reading back over it as I was this morning, because I was very aware of it when it happened. Um, and I just thought, you know, you were talking about £150 a week. And I don't know if that, uh, you know, leave that to be wherever when the world opens up again. But I mean, I just know the the cost of living in London, like I would have, I, it is so much easier to find £150 a week than it is to pay £1,000 of rent. And that's just your rent. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I, so so it, was, it is interesting to look at it with a bit of distance because I just was like, I, I, I understand why people were upset fine, but I just was like, yeah, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. Yeah, the hard thing is, is that obviously, and you forget this when you're, on the inside is that you've done so much work you've thought this over mm. frontwards backwards sideways 360 a mm. thousand times you've spoken to dozens of experts you've gone through two three four accelerators and examined this model um and everyone else hasn't and so it is a lot to expect yeah. them to kind of you know come to terms and get up to speed with that uh, it's also a complex model so it's not just that mm. we're saying okay, you have to pay for it. We're saying we want to put some of our profit when we eventually mm. hopefully make it aside to give bursaries to those who really need it. Yeah. And that's a kind mm. of, um, you know, we spoke as well off air about the concept of a social enterprise. It's a tricky concept because yeah. it's, you can be a social enterprise and be a charity, but you can also be a social enterprise and be what you call a community interest company. And you can be a social enterprise and be a co-op and you can be a social enterprise and be a limited company for profit. So, um, it is uh-huh. uh, a complex term, but essentially it means that you are putting the social needs uh, and often the needs of the planet, et cetera, alongside profit. And so for me, that has always mm. been um, what I thought, honestly, was the the best model for Presspad because I've seen lots of journalism charities. They exist. They do great work. Some of them are lucky enough to have decades long industry backing from broadcasters and news organisations. Some of them have uh, legacy funds attached to them. But that's a small space. And, you know, I spent about 12 months going literally door to door uh, to, you know, uh, media companies, speaking to editors, you know, seeking sponsorship essentially and it's it's a crowded market already and it also you know being a charity and you know there are definitely charitable elements of what we do and in the future you know wouldn't rule out you know there being a kind of split in the social enterprise you know sort of uh sustainable 
model of, of hosting, you know, where we have a service that we are providing, which is deeply competitive in terms of its pricing and has this built in notion of giving back through, you know, bursaries, etc., that that would separate maybe from other elements of what Presspad does in terms of its mission, you know, to, to put that socioeconomic diversity at the fore, because nobody else is doing that within our industry in the same kind of um, dedicated focus way. There may come a time when we do split those. Um, mm-hmm. But at the moment, you know, I was going to to um, organizations and it's a lot of hard work to get people to give you money for free. On top of that, you know, when you yeah. are a charity and charitable status, you know, is something that that's a, a long, hefty process um, and requires all sorts of, you know, systems of government governance, quite rightly, which, you know, um, had mm. working in this kind of lean startup way essentially is a kind of experiment that, that went right, really. Um, and that kind of then, you know, mm. caused us to sort of constantly be p- playing catch up. And, you know, I, I never expected it to get this far mm-hmm. down the line. Um, uh, but, you know, there's there's a lot of work that goes into if you see these charities and their overheads and how much money they spend on constantly trying to raise money in a, and win grants, mm. that's a hamster wheel in, in and of itself. So if you look at yeah. hosting service as something where there is there is an offer and there is a need and people are willing to pay a reduced and, you know, essentially mm. a, um, a kind mm. of subsidized um, uh, rate, but th- they, there is there is demand there. That is something then where you don't need to go outside and ask other people for money for free because you have a service and, and a product that you're supplying. And that product, mm. as you say, it's yeah. not just about the cost of it. It's also the access to it. Uh, and I think some of the original mm. um, kind of kerfuffle and, and, and sort of um, upset was about this notion of charging for access. But it's something that we see all the time. I mean, if you've paid your education or you've paid for your university or you've paid even, you know, to, to go and rent a hotel that's way more expensive, you are paying for access to your career in one way or the other. So if we yeah. can you know, reduce yeah. the cost of that because we have bursaries, because we are working with a group of people providing these spare rooms who desperately care about their industry themselves and see something that they can get mm-hmm. out of this arrangement. And also the other element of, of our model is 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 to um, have news organisations give them a way to pay for their own employees and their interns. There yeah. are potential clients on the horizon, you know, looking to do that because they understand the value of it bringing people into their, you know, through their newsroom doors that otherwise wouldn't even be on their radar, then you know you start yeah. to build up an ecosystem whereby you can actually provide a service that rivals the the harsh reality out there, which is, you know, that, mm. that these opportunities are unaffordable. So it doesn't have to be entirely free, but it does have to be incredibly carefully thought out so that there aren't any secondary harm being done. For example, that which was leveraged, you know, as criticism to us that there we could be creating a kind of secondary form of hierarchy so that only, you know, middle class people, um, you know, from the north mm. could afford it, etc. That's why we have the bursaries. Mm. There should not be a scenario where anybody could not afford mm. press pad. It just depends which route you take, where the nuance and the complexity comes in. It kind of, yeah, it kind of reminds me of the the thing I was just thinking while you're saying that is like, 
done is better than perfect because to be honest if I was you I would have just been like screw all of you and just <laughs> closed it because I'm not as tough as I'm not as tough as that because I would have just been like oh you're kidding but I mean and, and I, I understand and respect oh. the, the the criticism but I do sometimes think you know and, and I, I think I wonder sometimes if it's just a side effect of our industry because we mm. we relentlessly hold ourselves and other people to an incredibly high standard which we have to do it's yeah. a part of our job so I just think we turn it on each other it can be a bit no a bit no hectic, and- but I, I think it is, and I think you know it. It, it definitely, I'm not going to lie, it hurts on a personal level. Mm. But you know, honestly, that's how you grow is through these challenges. Mm. And you know, it's only I think trust is something that is hard to build. And you mm. know, the fact that we didn't disappear at the you know the kind of first sort of potential leveling of criticism shows that we don't have anything to hide. We've done nothing wrong. Yeah. We're here totally, you know, with open hearts and the best of intentions uh, and to listen. And out of it, you mm. know, came a number of, um, you know, connections to people that in actual fact, in the first instance, were quite critical. And then their criticism actually went on to, you know, be incredibly important in in kind of um, leveraging that, that growth and change. Um, you know, so mm. while there is a part of it that, you know, wishes, okay, that nobody had ever raised any of those issues, um, just unavoidable you know and I have a business Mm. mentor that says you know it these are things that kind of happen you know and Mm. the best will in the world we live in an imperfect world mistakes are going to happen um uh and not this was a mistake but you know criticism or not seeing eye to eye and not everybody will be a fan and there will still be people that even after that you know quite extensive um explanation I give you you know will still uh, be wary yeah. and, and not kind of trust our intentions and that's where you know that consistency continuing and, and that's why it's so important to me and while it can be absolutely exhausting doing this you know there'll be moments where I've been mm. broken by you know my commitment to, to to what we're doing here you know you keep going because it's important to show you know and and for me you know my my number one commitment really is to the idea itself Olivia is a uh, braver person than me <laughs> anyone who's going to start trying to build something in the world of journalists is uh, is very brave next up we get onto the conversation about things being free and this is something that's really expanding in my mind at the moment because we think if i just think about how much labor time expertise often money is expected of people who are trying to make or start good things. There's a clash here with the tech world and anything that isn't really the tech world. So, in my opinion, it's exploitative. You know, we, I, if 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 you're putting labor, time, expertise, all this sort of stuff into an app, that once you've done making it is like made once, and then fine, you have to build out a whole company to deal with all the other issues. But there's a big payoff at the other end. Um, that's what people are hoping for. And then if your startup fails, those people don't end up in debt for the rest of their lives. They've got, you know, VC funding. So, you know, then they go on and make another one and they try again. So that's not what's happening. That's not how that works in media. So how much innovation can we expect and how diverse a crowd will be doing that innovation? if we expect people to put in their blood and sweat and tears for free. I mean, free. This is kind of an issue. News now is, for the most part, free. And on principle, this is incredible, and Olivia picks up on this. But in reality, 
Well, the last four years is enough to tell you that news being free and combining with the tech world, uh, this little, like, little experiment isn't, isn't going very well. But yeah, I wanted to, to touch though on, on what you were saying about free things, because um, I don't think I've really yeah. said much, much about that. And yeah, and I think yeah. you know, that, that there is a cultural thing there for sure. Um, and I think, you know, part of what happened in that moment was, as you say, that slightly kind of, um, you know, knee-jerk kind of scrutiny that, that journalists apply to, and cynicism that, you know, we apply to everything that we mm. look at, which, you know, which is necessary in, in, our, in our jobs. But the other one is, yeah, this notion that everything should should be free. And I think what having now kind of really waded you know into the whole world of social enterprise startups you know small business has taught me is that you know journalism itself as an industry is really in crisis it, mm-hmm. it you know things there is no such thing as a, as a free lunch yeah. and it's and we, and we, and we, you know, we've seen some strides, you know, some organizations like the FT, you know, have, have done really well with their paywalls. You know, you have individual journalists who are making a, you know, a, a massive success of things like Substack newsletters and Patreon mm. and whatnot. But everybody is looking for a way to, to make these things sustainable. So to, to argue that information should be free, I think, at the point of, of access or at least some information. And that's why, you know, I'm so proud to work for the BBC. Um, and, you know, it's so important um, organizations that, that are doing, you know, work that is for free. But if if that is for free at the point of concept, there has to be a different another way of funding it. So, you know, we look at um, America has, has, a, has a much more robust system of philanthropic, you know, sort of ventures. And but, you know, there, there are problems there. So the fact that Jeff mm. Bezos owns the Washington Post. Yes. OK, I'm sure he doesn't have any, you know, editorial influence. Mm. But look, that requires the whole of Amazon to fund you know which yeah. is a profit making entity to fund what is essentially a profit draining entity you know a newsroom yeah. um, so yeah. the balance you may have to zoom out quite a, a a far way to work out where the incoming money is is then being offset yeah. but that yeah. balance has to be there somewhere within the system whether that is coming from government grants coming from you know kind of membership um, and there's innovative things happening all over the UK you know so there's this great mm. um a uh, local uh, newsroom called the Bristol Cable, which works on a membership basis. You know, there, mm. there are, um, uh, I think... There's, um, uh, I'm going to throw in the Ferrets in Scotland. Yeah, are fantastic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And Black Black Ballard is a is a um, magazine for for women of color um, who they have a subscription model. So you know it's there's all sorts of options that are emerging, but within a system that is already very broken still from the decline in advertising, the rise of these social mm. media giants. You know it's it's a complex landscape, uh, and I think really what happened there in a way was almost a kind of tiniest of microcosms of, you know, that debate really about how do we make uh, worthwhile things, you know, pay for themselves. Um, And and so for me, you know, Mm. um, not only was it important to come up with a sustainable system um, and, you know, to communicate that I think will still be our challenge going forward, especially when the, the, the web platform launches, but you know, it's also important to, to really understand where the value is in what you're giving. And so, you know, even if there are options for there to be uh, bursaries, just like, you know, there may be options um, for 
you know, uh, in a paywall for there to be a reduced cost for student access. You know, for example, I think the, the FP has, yeah. has reduced subscriptions for, for students. You know, there has to be a notion of, of what value you're bringing, because otherwise it's impossible then to to convince anybody of, of where you sit within this kind of um, capitalist system we have. You know, it'd be great, kumbaya and all, if, you know, we went back to trading, you know, kind of pebbles on the sand you know the, exactly. but that's not got yeah. and I think um you know the the, the ability if, if you can see a, a a strong and powerful business model that is going to raise money then you know really I think the only thing at question um is is you know is that company and is that organization going to then use the the profit that they have for good and and, and that is what we're committed to as a social enterprise and we're registered um, with Social Enterprise UK, we pay the real London living wage. The profit is there to be created to then be offset in a way that uh, we have control over because otherwise we're then yeah. just forming a, a huge queue with all the other, you know, charitable entities, you know, coming and begging at yeah. the industry who themselves don't have much money. Ain't that the truth? So... To end off our conversation, I want to ask Olivia a little bit more about her life outside of Presspad and what makes her tick. I wanted to know what is driving her to make this change in the industry. Um, that seems, honestly, in my opinion, some days, really unwilling or unable to change itself. What well, I think what I'd love to know now is, like, I want to say that, like, why you, and in, in that, like, where, tell me a bit more about Olivia, the, the the journalist and the work that you do, because to be honest, um, I'm saying this as a white woman whose parents paid for her to go to university, so we can have the little privilege game here. But like, you know, you could have probably just tootled on and not addressed any of the stuff and no one would have called you out on it. And you could have just gone on and made documentaries and not get torn a strip off of you on Twitter and all this sort of stuff. So what what is it in you that um, like what what is keeping you going and, and what is it what? What motivated you? What keeps you running in this? Like, what is it in you that keeps you running in this? Honestly, I mean, I love ideas. And I just thought this was a cracking idea. And I just, it was one that kept me up at night and I just mm. couldn't let it go. And that's, you know, being very honest, there are definitely all of the elements of, you know, improving the industry you know doing something to give back and and it, it feels so good to do something that you know is actually helping people because I thought a lot of more of my journalism career would feel like that and it hasn't honestly so you know that that all of that kind of element of of wanting to improve the situation and help people is there but it was also just for me a cracking idea that I just thought made so much sense and and just had to be done and I think what keeps me going is not betraying that idea. It's a great idea. Someone needs to do it, you know? The sense of, um, I have a very strong, you can ask my my siblings and my parents, I have a, a very kind of strong sense of what is right and wrong to the point of it being irritating. Um, and I think that's mm-hmm. something as as one of those those the journalism traits where you like when you meet other journalists you're like oh you also annoyed everyone at the dinner table but you're like this is not right (laughs) you know it was a small area that I could kind of you know and and I was honestly getting tired of working within a system that I just saw kind of wasn't working for everybody not just everybody on the inside but also you know or 
people who would eventually find their way onto the inside, but also, you know, readers. And um, it just, to me, didn't make much sense. And it was affecting when you start to see actually it matters how Mm. journalism is done, not just the type of journalism. Obviously, there's a connection between them. Mm. You know, you see all sorts of other injustices, you know, equal pay rouse, you know, um, discrimination, racial discrimination. um, And, you know, it particularly irks, I think, when you are working with people and for organizations that profess to kind of hold the rest of the world to account, but then aren't really keeping their own house in order. That hypocrisy there really rankled me. And then finally, you know, um, just having started it, it's just so rewarding to to help people. And, you know, my mom always says to me, and she said all the way through the pandemic, you know, even if everything, you know, you get down to your last penny and, you know, none of this works out or you have to mothball press pad for a while. And, you know, she said, look, you still in that, in that, in the pilot that you did, you know, you helped, you know, dozens and dozens of young people find their way into their career. And so, you know, I mm. think um, even just on what we've been able to do so far, um, yeah, like, yeah. Like, like, um, and, and I think you know yeah. as well as you say you know there's no reason why I needed to do it in particular but I do think you know having looked more and more into discrimination and the systems you know that kind of keep keep the status quo the burden is so often on people who you know are in the minority and those are the people that literally those are the people that really should just be allowed to put their heads down and work on their careers and fight their own individual battles mm. not you know as well as you know having to then be a representative for the entirety of their you know insert racial minority you know gender minority mm. whatever and and put together schemes and fight and it, it yeah. is it is draining and I thought you know what I'm a staff journalist I privately educated I went to university I have some means you know if anybody should be be putting you know those resources towards something it is somebody that has them as opposed to somebody that doesn't that I don't know everything there's no way I can that's why I ask questions and that's why you know um mm-hmm. uh, the work that I do has to be excellent mm-hmm. so you know um but I do think that yeah those those mm-hmm. who who have more there is honestly it, it's my deeply held belief that that there is a responsibility for them to do more yeah that's great and you know I really like I'm not I'm not saying that to blow smoke up your your butt because I'd really like I just I really did I was sort of reading <laughs> looking at all of this stuff and just the 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 graft and the 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 endless hours of unpaid work that people don't see and all that sort of stuff and I was like yeah I mean with your credentials you could have easily just you know <laughs> wandered on and not yeah and, then, and not taken the leg honestly so it's it's Lisa, you know, there, are days, there are days when I when I kind of hit myself and think you know <laughs> what like your, your journalism career is, mm-hmm. is suffering as a result mm-hmm. you know what are about all these films and documentaries you wanted to do that mm-hmm. you're you know pushing down your to-do list because there are more urgent things that need mm-hmm. to be taken care of with an organization that you know is public facing etc um so I you know I sometimes feel that myself um but I also you know um um immensely proud and and aware as well of of everything that I have um been able to experience and have learned through you know running press pad you know mm. it's um it's a, it's a kind of rich uh kind of debt in a way that that's kind of been paid you know you can't you can't put a price tag on that any um i mean uh where you see press pad going this year 
And if you can just tell everyone where to find you and what the best way they can support Presspad. If they're listening to all of this saying, I've never thought about this. I've never thought about who made my news. I don't even know what's happened to my local paper. <laughs> like, um, If you could maybe just give them a tip or two mm. of how they can sort of support. For me personally, um, and I think for Presspad, it's going to be about consolidation and you know, we really didn't take our, our foot off the gas during the pandemic, even though a lot of that work um, has been hidden and kind of yet to come to fruition. So I think, you know, our aim will be to to launch our marketplace website, hopefully, you know, with a client or two within the, the new space and to bring back hosting, essentially. And obviously, you know, all of that with the huge caveats over, you know, what's possible with the pandemic. But I think, you know, the the fact that we've shown that, you know, we've we've survived or, you know, to date are surviving um, everything that's going on uh, is, is really positive. And, and, and that's probably alongside relaunching that service, you know, just daily being grateful and aware that that we're still here. Um, so, you know, I think mm. those would be the, the two things to, you know, on the one hand, striving to, to bring back the service on the other being aware of, you know, just what it means to still be in a position where that is a goal we can have. And in terms of following Presspad, you know, we have a website, um, www.presspad.co.uk, uh, which is due for a revamp on, on one of the many things on my huge list. Um, uh, but we also are all across social media, and that's at Presspad UK uh, across LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and if there's any way that you want to chat with us, um, offer any of your services, uh, volunteer, um, you know, give us give a speech, raise any money, run a marathon, anything, um, you know, where you might want to feed into what we're doing, just DM us on any of those um, platforms. Or if you're more of an email person, uh, you can email us at info at presspad.co.uk. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for joining me on Storyteller. Thank you, Lisa. It was a pleasure. Thanks again to Olivia. All of the things that she mentioned will be linked in the show notes if you want to just click straight through. So for my reflections this week, I did just want to talk a little bit about the Silicon Valley startup model way of doing things. And I wonder what we are going to think about it maybe 20, 30, 50 years from now. The startup model requires moving fast and breaking things, as Mark Zuckerberg famously said a few years before, his inventions almost broke democracy, broke the media, broke our, you know, parent boomers' brains, um, and ours probably, I mean, Instagram, WhatsApp, um, but the idea is pump money into an idea before it makes any financial sense. So you can win all the market share, push all the other competitors out who don't, you know, have to like run a business that makes any financial sense. And then at some point in the future, you will make millions, billions, trillions. It's an old stat from 2015 that everyone bandies about, but 90% of startups fail. Venture capitalists make this gamble because maybe one of your 10 investments is Uber and you'll make millions, but also Uber it's still not profitable. <laughs> you just Google it. Like, Uber doesn't make money yet. Uber does destroyed, you know, like London taxis and massively underpaced. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. Even the success stories in this model are <clears throat> questionable. 
But this culture is everywhere. The language is everywhere. If you want money from anyone, investment from anyone, this is like new businesses, charities, social enterprises, you're most likely going to have success if you use the language and culture of startups or you know, you'll be put in things like innovation hubs. Again, it's like all language from the startup world, accelerators. You're just going to do better if you engage in this world and, and you might just have to engage in this world. So I'm not putting the blame on the people who have to engage in the system. But I guess what I'm just thinking is that it is a system that doesn't translate well into other industries. And maybe we shouldn't take advice from a model that relies on endless capital, aggressive market capitalization, and a 90% failure rate. This, I mean, what upsets me also is like this Silicon Valley, this place, the physical place that has invented this wonderful system of profit generation that promises wealth for all, made many people billionaires you know so advanced is so like the the sharp edge of human innovation they can't even solve their own homelessness problem and have not been able to for many years right so again just to be clear i think this is structural and cultural i think there are people who are doing incredible things to try and change this world and they are going to have to speak this language the startup language for a while if they even want to test out their ideas but I for one am hoping that more and more of us can question the validity of that system and that structure as usual please email me any thoughts or questions you have at storytellerpod at gmail.com and on social media just search storyteller podcast and lisa golden you'll find me on instagram and twitter so until next time 